what about rules within committee? You know, what, what bills to take up, debate, report, vote on? You know, there's different rules. And in the House, there's a lot of discretion with the chairman to decide which rules are going to be, you know, set up for the committee. In the Senate, yeah. you know, is it the same? Can you talk about the rules and which ones are work and which ones are less good for the committees as a whole? Yeah, you know, the House and Senate are different in this way, too. In the House, there's a system of joint referral. So a bill is introduced, the parliamentarian decides which committee it's assigned to. And say a bill reads on two different committees' jurisdiction, in the House, it gets referred to both committees and, uh, you know, one after another. And it really kind of puts a premium on sticking to one subject matter in the House. You know, you if you're on that committee, you want your bill to be managed in that committee, you don't want to go into some other committee and God knows what happens to it there. In the Senate, it's a single subject rule for everything except the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And so the parliamentarian looks at it and says, what is this mostly about? And that's the committee that gets it. So it creates a little more liberality. In terms of internal committee procedures, that's just all by custom. And it's really all just at the power of the chairman. And over the years, I saw various revolts in judiciary where a certain procedure was used you know, for delay within the committee, kind of filibuster within committee. And eventually that procedure gets you know canceled by the chairman because he's sick of these uh delays or these uh these processes um and um you know we move on and but you know the the, the, the uh, each committee really is in terms of internal procedure it's really every senator's own little uh, every chairman's own little fiefdom and there's really no um no getting around that i i recall once when uh, we were working on um you know, these national security issues, there was a lot of focus at one point on the Bush administration's claim to inherent authority to do national security surveillance. And it's an aspect of the parents uh, president's inherent powers and, you know, can't be regulated by Congress and had a couple of hearings on this. And then after a controversial set of hearings, there was important information that was provided by the Bush administration. And uh, on the uh, committee's listserv, the press shop, you know, circulated this information from the administration. And I remember a uh, staffer from Senator Feingold's office did a reply all to everything, you know, the 100 or 200 people on this judiciary email chain saying, I demand to know why the chairman, you know, gave this to the press first and talked to them about it before sharing with the committee is required by, you know, committee rules. And it's like, come on. And I, I ended up sending a reply all to him uh, saying, um, you know, dear so-and-so, the uh, chairman's right to take first dibs on any available press opportunity is an aspect of his inherent powers and cannot be divested by uh, committee rules. You know, the chairman just has a lot of discretion in how to run these things, uh, especially when it comes to press opportunities. And do you think that's a good thing? You know, it's just reality. You can't um, you can't have a system where um, you have these rules and things can be appealed. People just need to get along on committees. And in the end, again, the committees. You know, what happens in committee is just the beginning of the process. Uh, if a committee does something very, you know, when when a you know, when I used to monitor bills out of other committees or even judiciary, if it came out on a party line vote, you kind of stop paying attention, you know, with the filibuster in the Senate, unless one party has 60 votes or something, which is, you know, happened once, but is very rare, that bill's not going anywhere. Um, if they haven't been able to work out kind of any kind of a deal. Now, when a bill comes out of Senate judiciary and it got two thirds, three fourths of the members, you know, it's a bill that has legs, uh, especially or if it came out unanimously, and that's something that's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, you know, the chairman can be mu as much of a tyrant as he wants, but ultimately his power depends on his ability, you know, to cut a deal. And if you're just reporting a bunch of bills 
um, out of your committee as chairman on party line votes and you've just incensed the minority, you ain't legislating. <laughs> you're, you're, you're sending a, a bunch of stuff to nowhere. Um, you can have the most beautiful bill that gets out of committee, a beautifully written report, et cetera. If it doesn't pass both bodies and get signed into law by the president, it doesn't count for anything. Well, this kind of comes to the question of what's a good congressman or, you know, even a, uh, a senator or a, or a staffer, you know, do you define that as getting their bills through? Uh, do you define it? How, how do you define someone's job as, as having them doing a good job or as not a good job? Yeah, I, you know, I think that, you know, what matters as a member is how you're influencing legislation. And, you know, not all members agree on that, but to me, you know, the, the fact when and I was very struck by this when I was there, you know, how many people in the American system have the ability to change the law, you know, senators and congressmen have that power. It's a pretty nifty power. And uh, I was always a little surprised when I saw a new senator who was very interested in the Supreme Court and wanting to file amicus briefs or speechifying. Like, ah, you know, I'd concentrate on just writing laws if I were you. It's a pretty unique and important uh, uh, power. Um, you know, you definitely get the members who just love being a member for its own sake. You know, the guy who ran for student body president when, you know, he was in middle school and, you know, just loves being the center of attention and, or, or the older members who love speaking to groups of high school students that come over and it just, you know, it's very, uh, you know, when I, um, when I first started in the Senate, especially there were a lot of, uh, I think there are still a lot of old senators, but there were some really old ones there. Uh, Thurmond and Hollings were still there and they used to say, Senate's the world's best nursing home. Uh, you have the staff of basically, you know, 40, 50 people that take care of everything for you. It's all these young people. It's kind of invigorating to be around them. You're uh, treated as very important. People come from the home state and, uh, you know, want to meet with you and hang on to your every word. It's, uh, you know, you know, beats the heck out of most real nursing homes. Um, so you can see why people stick around. And then, of course, you also get the members who, you know, they're going to be president one day and, uh, you know, that's their plan. And, everything they do is oriented about towards one day running for president. And as you can imagine, those members often also don't focus that much on their legislative powers. But um, to me, the ones who really matter are you know, the ones who focus on the details of legislation. You know, that's where you can, can really have a big impact um, on the country. I think you asked also what makes a good uh, member in that sense, you know, if, if you agree with me that that's what's uh, important. You know, when I started, I would have thought like, oh, being very lawyerly and detail oriented is critical for a member. And then I realized, especially in the Senate, these guys are spread so thin and uh, and you have a ton of staff. You really need to rely on the staff um, to you know keep you apprised of issues and do the legal research. Uh, you know, a senator doesn't have time to look into the case law and how a statute, you know, was, uh, um, you know, was interpreted over time and figure out what the relevant uh, terms of art are. You really need to rely on your staff and what the members and even the more senior staff, what they really need to have is good political judgment. And by political judgment, I, I don't mean as much, you know, the national political debates, but just a sense of how the body works. And, uh, you know, when we did the patent bill, I remember at one point we had, we were debating when to bring up a manager's amendment and bring a vote on it. And uh, Senator Leahy was the chairman at the time, um, had this very senior staffer who just had been there a lot and had a sense of when it's appropriate to bring up a manager's amendment and request to vote and just how things are done in the Senate. And, uh, you know, getting along with your colleagues and cutting deals, things like that's what's really important to the members. For the staff, you know, you want someone detail oriented, someone who goes through those annotations of the statutes and knows the, you know, legal minefields and traps that are out there. 
and you know just good lawyers it's um someone who can you know really understands the issues that matter in legislation i used to say writing a bill is like litigating in reverse you know you're trying to envision all the scenarios where this will matter and etc and in addition to looking through past case law you really just need to meet with constituents and affected industries and you know get their perspective on well if the text is written this way how would that work you know in their industry etc when sometimes when we were moving a bill like the patent bill I'd, I'd religiously follow all the blogs and other information about it because sometimes some random lawyer out in another part of the country who's looking at this draft bill spots a real flaw and you know it's a great kind of crowdsourcing way of fixing things there are things i changed in the patent bill at various points simply because um i saw a blog post by a lawyer who probably had no idea anyone on the hill was paying attention but they you know spot a real issue and um you know you want to fix those things i you know i, I also used to say especially with a big bill there's always something that needs a technical correction later and there's always something you wished you drafted differently so ideally you just want to vet it as thoroughly as possible to minimize you know those mistakes because you'll never get rid of all of them i've never seen a bill a big bill that was perfect and you didn't need any technical corrections later so you know you bring up an interesting point here where you know the the staff have to be super detailed um and they're doing a lot of the analysis and even collecting information from the constituents what about tools that the staff and the member can use to do that i mean i mean in the case that you just described it was a blogger somewhere who gave you some insights right into the bill text and what the impact might be if that were passed right what kinds of tools were available to you to do this kind of research, to do this kind of crowdsourcing? What kind of tools do you think should be available? You know, I mean, the, just the the growth of the development of the internet is just a fantastic thing for um, this type of stuff. Just the easy access to information, um, you know, it's it's it really you know completely changes your world as a well, frankly, as any kind of lawyer, but also um, you know, in this role where you know you're trying to find any source of information or anything that's relevant you know just the uh, you know ability to run a search and find you know whatever refers to a, an issue just gives you access to information that would have been unimaginable you know in the days of yore when everything is filtered and only if certain publications uh pick it up it's really a wonderful thing i mean just the fact that you know random patent lawyer who's kind of interested in the bill and has thought hard about it can share their thoughts you know on the web you know not not have any connection to journalists, no political connections or anything. They just post their thoughts on the web. And, um, you know, as someone working on Capitol Hill or even as a lobbyist for an industry, you can find this and, you know, find relevant information. It's, it's just a wonderful thing. I, it's hard to imagine how, you know, how, thing, how people did things before. Now, what about mistakes um, or, you know, when you're giving advice to other staffers or even even members or senators, what what are the, some of the mistakes you'd seen over the years or things people shouldn't do or certain behaviors they should avoid? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, a lot of um, a lot of staff don't stay very long on the Hill. Um, some staff do stay long, but they work for a member who's more inactive. So, you know, you're helping that uh, coordinate that high school group, you know, that's coming to talk to the senator or you're monitoring the constituent mail, you know, making sure it's getting out on time. Uh, senators receive thousands of letters from constituents uh, every week. So there's all kinds of, there's plenty of kind of non-substantive stuff to fill your time with. And then, um, you know, there are just a few staff, I think there are about 14, 15,000 staff who work on Capitol Hill. 
And only a pretty small sliver of those actually work on, you know, drafting legislation that uh, becomes law. And often you get um, uh, people who just, you know, don't have as much experience, haven't been, you know, or don't have the benefit of that senior staffer who has judgment on how to see things move forward. And the toughest calls that you have to make on the Hill and the ones where I've seen people most frequently make mistakes are, when do I cut a deal? Um, you know, you're the staffer in charge of some substantial bill that's moving and, you know, you're finally getting, you know, through the committee or floor time and, you know, you're having to deal with the other side or people who have some kind of concern or something. And there are two mistakes that, um, you know, people make. One is you cut the deal where you've got your bill and the bill is now kind of an empty shell. Um, I remember uh, talking once with a um, IP counsel for the American Bar Association. He used to work for the House of Representatives and he said that they used to have this kind of uh, sarcastic saying there that the odds of a bill getting enacted into a law are inversely proportional to how much it still addresses the problem it originally set out to address. You're like, yeah, you have this great idea that's going to solve this problem, but people don't want that problem solved. And to finally get your bill done, you have to you know, take out the parts that really make a difference. A fair amount of that happens. Um, the other mistake, uh, the opposite, and I've seen this made probably even more often is, you know, you have your bill, you're going to change the world, completely solve this problem for society in some area, and every part of it is precious. It's like your own child. And someone, you know, you're on the Senate floor, you're running into opposition, the opposition is coalesced around, you know, one change they want to one part of your bill, and you won't give them that last five cents, uh, and you won't cut a deal with them. And uh, I always told people like, look, when you're in that situation, you know, and someone's asking for 5%, you know, even 10% of your bill, just give it to them, you know, and because what I've seen happen repeatedly is, yeah, they wouldn't budge, the opposition became firm, eventually they couldn't get cloture, the leadership, you know, realized this is a waste of time, this bill isn't moving, and it's pulled, and, um, you know, you just, there aren't many second chances for legislation, once the leadership has lost confidence in your ability to manage the bill, um, you know, it tends to, um, you know, it, it, that, that tends to be the end of it. And I, I've seen many an occasion where I thought, you know, the people who are managing that bill, I bet you they really regret now that they can't get that 95%, 90% version of what they could have gotten at one point if they had just, you know, been more accommodating at that critical point. And it, it's the toughest call you have to make as a staffer or a bill manager. Because um, you have to decide what's really important. And, you know, there's, you're just giving up a certain amount of ego. You really hate those guys who have been fighting you. They've been nothing but a nuisance. You don't want to give them anything. You want to stick it to them. And so, no, I'm not going to give them that last 5% that they're demanding now. Um, you really need to kind of maintain a certain level of humility and modesty and just, you know, settle for, you know, frankly, anything that's at least half a loaf or three quarters of a loaf is still a good deal and, um, you know, advances the process. And maybe someone will get that last, you know, that last element in another couple of Congresses and another bill. Well, this leads to this polarization question. Um, you know, when when people don't want to compromise, uh, you, you know, during the time you were on the Hill versus today, you know, people talk about increasing polarization. And, you know, what is your thought on that, on that process? Why, why is it harder to compromise now? Or is that just an illusion? Are they compromising just as much as before, it's it's the coverage that that's changed. Yeah, you know, I think it's a little of both. Um, to some extent, like, look, House members and Senate members are elected by constituents who read the same media. And, you know, as, as, as we're increasingly, you know, media polarized into a society where 
you know, people don't just watch the CBS evening news in the evening like they did in the in the 80s, which certainly had its own biases. But now, you know, Republicans watch Fox, Democrats watch MSNBC and um, um, and CNN and listen to, you know, each side's conspiracy theories. You know, the Senate's a reflection, the Senate and House are a reflection of society. And, you know, for, the more we're a polarized society, the more it's going to be a polarized Congress as well. But the other thing I'd say is, you know, to some extent it was ever thus. I mean, you know, people used to say, oh, this Congress is the worst ever. I, I tell them, well, I was here for the 108th. And uh, there was this unfortunate incident where a uh, Republican staffer on judiciary found out how to hack into the Democrats' uh, databases and got into their files. And believe me, there was a lot of unhappiness about that. And that was a, you know, there was some tension after that. Not as bad as the, uh, um, you know, tension following the unpleasantness of January 6th. But, um, you know, there have been, you know, high emotions and, and tensions. And, you know, what I've seen is, yeah, people are really mad at each other, but it's hard to stay so mad that out of spite, you're not going to do anything. So, yeah, I'm really mad about what this guy did here, or, you know, he's just a, a bad person. And therefore, I'm not going to work on, you know, patent reform legislation, you know, that doesn't really have a political charge. And by the way, I have some pretty important constituents that would like this legislation, it would benefit them. And, you know, when, when you're all packed together, you know, the members actually do, in the Senate especially, they do have relationships with each other. And, you know, they do work behind the scenes and eventually figure out how to get along. Um, some of the members have been there an awfully long time and have seen things come and go. And, uh, you know, what's the point, frankly, unless you're the guy who's definitely going to become president one day, you know, what's the point of being a senator all those years if you're not getting something done that affects public policy? Um, almost everyone came into this, you know, except for, you know, the, the future presidents with some notion of, oh, they, you know, they're patriotic people and they have, you know, they have their different visions of what's good for America, but they want to get things done. And, uh, you know, as, as polarized and as angry as people are at different times, when legislation finally comes along, it's, it's hard to say like, no, I'm going to, you know, to cut off my nose to spite my face and, you know, not work on anything at all. And, uh, you know, things were pretty polarized under Obama and we got a major patent uh, uh, reform legislation done you know, in 2011, despite all of the, uh, you know, high emotions over all kinds of other issues, members, you know, across the aisle managed to still work together on legislation. All right. Well, you ready to move on to our uh, lightning round of questions I ask all of our guests? Uh, sure. Yeah. That way we can compare the, the, the answers and see if they all come out the same or totally different. Um, my first one here is what do you think congressional representation should mean? You know, it just means, you know, we're a democracy and congressional representation is just our way of um, channeling the popular will and assuming, you know, ensuring that the government really does more or less have the consent of the people. So when when we talk about this notion of, uh, you, know, implement, you know, doing the will of the people, now the, the senator or the member, are they, do you consider them to be exercising their own judgment about you know, the interests of their constituents or are they reflecting just, you know, what are the stated beliefs of those, those individuals? You know, it's a mix of the two. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's good that it's a mix. Um, sometimes your constituents are angry for the wrong reason and are demanding Congress do things that are not in the public interest. And it's a passion that'll cool eventually. Um, sometimes members were originally interest, uh, influenced by some entrenched interest that's getting an unfair advantage in the system. And 
the public increasingly becomes aware of this and complains about it. And uh, the senator or congressman over time realizes, you know, if I want to get reelected, I really have to respond to what people really think about this issue and not just what the party's traditional position was or, you know, what certain interests wanted in which I, you know, the members definitely, you know, genuinely believe what they were doing originally were the right thing. But when you see sustained public opposition, um, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a good thing, you know, that they are forced to address those issues. Um, you know, what's important to the people in the long term, you know, gets addressed. All right, next question is, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And by that, it could mean legislation versus oversight, you know, in the district or in the home state versus DC. You know, as, as much time as they can spend on both oversight and um, legislating, you know, the better. It's important to go back to and meet with constituents, although constituents often come and meet with, uh, with you as well. Um, people sometimes decry that there's so much emphasis you know, with air travel now on going back and, uh, um, and you know, going to events all the time in a district and members don't have as much time to meet with each other. Um, you know, and I think there's probably something to that. It would be better if in the house, especially if they had more time, um, uh, more time to interact in Washington, but now it's important to stay in touch with constituents as well and you know, hear what people are thinking about. So would you give it a percentage time? You know, is it two weeks on, one week off? Is it half and half? Is it 10% in the district? Uh, probably something closer to the, you know, the, the, you know, the first number you gave. Um, legislating is their main job and ah, they should be spending the bulk of, you know, two thirds of their time in Washington, you know, actually working on bills. Right. Uh, next one is how should debate, deliberation or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress? You know, I think the current system is pretty good. Um, you know, in the Senate, they, you can air things out as long as you want. And with only 100 members and more collegiality, that tends to work itself out. Um, in the House, look, with 435 people, um, you know, you, you, you can't have unlimited debate. Um, things need to be regulated um, a bit more. You know, you can't rely on a system of unanimous consent in the House, for example. Um, I have seen that happen when the patent bill moved. At one point, there was a dispute over whether a vote was called short on an amendment. And uh, just, to calm, uh, um, uh, just to calm passions on it, uh, the parliamentarian said, look, the only way to reopen the vote is by unanimous consent. And the members allowed it just so that there wouldn't be this narrative going forward that a vote was cut short. But I think that's the only time I ever saw that. Uh, otherwise, you, you do need a more structured process and more limited um, debate and amendments in the House for it to be able to function. And do you think those debates and discussions should happen in committees or on the floor or in private? Uh, you know, all three. Um, you know, the com committee is a good chance to get an initial draft going. The floor is a check on, you know, did the committee, uh, um, you know, really, you know, cut the right deal or was the committee process, you know, was the committee's, um, um, you know, reflection of public interest itself distorted in a way. And you see this vary across issues. I, you know, I work for, main, for the Judiciary Committee, which tends to be very partisan. And I remember at one point, Larry Craig joined the committee, former senator from Idaho, and his legislative director expressed to us surprise at how partisan the committee was. And, uh, you know, we said, well, what do you mean? Aren't all committees like this? And she said, oh, no, not at all. And she'd staff the senator on a number of other committees. And she said, on natural resources, for example, it's the Western states versus, you know, the Eastern states. The Western states have all these big federal lands and are interested in using them in different ways and are fighting with the 
rest of the country about that. And then she said, on the Appropriations Committee, it's the committee itself versus the rest of Congress. It's how much money can we spend before they shut us down? It's a entirely different dynamic. So, you know, you do need that. Uh, you, do, you do need the, the, the rest of the body's check on those, uh, on those committees, especially the ones where the committee over time tends to be dominated by some particular interest that's adverse to the interests of the uh, public as a whole. All right, next one is, uh, what fundamental institutional improvements should Congress make within 50 years? You know, I think our structure is pretty good. Um, you know, I, uh, one thing that always, always stayed with me is when I was in um, high school, I did a year as an exchange student in France. And uh, at one point in the history class, you know, we all had to take, they studied the United States. And uh, the teacher mentioned, you know, the U.S. has had the same constitution since the 18th century, which, you know, just seemed amazing, you know, to them. I mean, France has been through two republics in the I guess three in the 20th century, um, just to have that level of legal stability. But a system doesn't survive that long unless it works. And um, you know that is kind of the genius of the Constitution. They really, you know, from the especially from the chaos of the days of Articles of Confederation, the uh, framers really got a lot of experience on kind of government dynamics and how you structure a system so that you know, regardless of what your agenda is or you know what you want to accomplish, it just works as a way of filtering government power and in particular filtering legislation. And the bicameral system works quite well. It ensures stability, but not too much stability. You know, there was a point um, in France's post-revolutionary history when Napoleon really wanted to cripple the, uh, uh, the, you know, the legislative system. They had a bicameral legislature. So you know what he did to cripple it? He created a third legislative body. So it was a tricameral legislature. And that pushed it over the edge, you know, now nothing could get done. It's, you know, it's hard enough to coordinate two bodies. Uh, three just became impossible. And, you know, that led pretty quickly to Emperor Napoleon. Um, I think we have it right at, right with two, you know, one would uh, concentrate too much power and, you know, one set of leadership, et cetera. It's good to force them to compromise with another body and uh, sort out interests that way. Oh, and in terms of little things, you know, that might be fixed, I, I'd suggest, wouldn't be bad if in, in some ways they professionalize the system of staff. Right now, just each member hires, you know, and pays their staff whatever they want. And wouldn't be bad if they had more of a cadre of professional staff who are treated more like regular government employees. You get a higher quality of people that way. Um, if the staff aren't, you know, strong enough to handle legislation themselves, that power, should, you know, drifts away to lobbyists and private interests, which sometimes is fine, but it generally would be better if Congress itself had more control over, you know, how legislation is being um, crafted and who knows where all the bodies are buried uh, in the text. And then um, the only other thing I could think of that would improve the process is to have better press coverage of what's going on on the Hill um, from both sides. Um, in some ways, you know, the press coverage is actually better these days than it was in the past. At least both sides tend to get aired out. But, you know, you definitely would need that, uh, you know, disinfectant of sunshine on things going on on the Hill to make sure the um, you know, the process is really operating in the public interest. Great. Well, next one is, what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to Congress and congressional reform? You know, I have to say I don't really have an answer for that one. I never really read that. You know, when you're on the Hill and doing it, you tend not to read theoretical stuff about, you know, the Hill. Um, I had people, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Robert Caro's Master of the Senate came out while I was uh, working on the Hill and some of the staff I worked with read that and recommended it to me, told me I'd love it, but I uh, never got around to reading it. So I, uh, 
Uh, I'll plug that one. It came highly recommended, but I can't say I've read it myself. Excellent. So what's your what's your plan moving forward? Is it is it private practice from here on out or do you have any other interest in getting back on the hill or private the executive practice. branch? I'm, I'm done with government, you know, happy to work with clients and help advance their interests. I'm uh, quite comfortable in that phase of my career now. Great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for taking time with us. You're welcome.